Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Damian Garde. And I'm Adam Feuerstein. It is Thursday, December 22nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. This is our last show of 2022, so let's chat about what kind of year it was for biotech and such topics. Uh, Maybe a few thoughts on what's in store for 2023. We'll start with some quick takes on this week's news right after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, the COO of STAT. Hematologic disorders comprise a vast category of diseases that affect millions of Americans and have a significant impact on the lives of individuals, their loved ones, and the U.S. healthcare system. I'm here with Gina Laporte, Vice President, Global Head of Lymphoma and Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Development at Genentech. Gina, can you tell us how Genentech is advancing the treatment landscape for blood diseases? Genentech scientists are leveraging our decades of experience to extend and improve the lives of people with blood cancer by continuously delivering transformative therapies, working in close partnership with the hematology community. Our vision is to elevate standards of care and improve patient treatment experiences, which include developing medicines that are chemotherapy-free, fixed duration, and may be administered in an outpatient setting. For more information, visit gene.com forward slash hematology. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash hematology. So speaking of quick takes, there's a company called Cytodyne, uh, maybe not the most meaningful contributor to biotech news in, in recent history, but a notable one. And and Adam, this week we got a meaningful update in the saga that is Cytodyne, which people may recall over the past few years as being colorful. What what did we learn? Yeah, talk about the proverbial coal in the stocking for all the holidays. Uh, imagine being arrested for securities fraud right before the the Christmas break. That that would be a bummer. Uh but that is exactly what happened to former Cytodyne CEO, Nader Porhassan, and another related executive. Federal prosecutors indicted them this week on a variety of securities and mail fraud charges, basically stemming from the fact that nothing that Nader Porhassan ever said about the company's uh, progress and and most particularly it's uh, a drug that they were developing to treat uh, HIV and a bunch of other uh, diseases, including COVID, were true. They basically lied about everything. Um, and they lied in order to, uh, or I should say, they allegedly lied in order to uh, promote the stock price, uh, elevating the stock price so they could uh, sell uh, millions of dollars in stock for their own personal uh, aggrandizement. Uh, and so, uh, Nader Bahrasen, who is a person and a company that I have covered, uh, you know, a lot. I would say over the last couple of years, you know, mostly because it's like Damien, like you said, this is not a company that we we should spend much time on, but uh, it may be more for entertainment value. Um, but uh, you know, I guess if I, I don't know, am I allowed to pat myself on the back, Damien? Is that something that we can do? <laughs> well, know. it'll be imperceptible in audio terms unless you really, really give That's it a true. go. So 
that should maybe close your eyes and and see myself <laughs> patting myself on the back for for writing about this stuff and 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 sort of warning folks that uh, most of most if not everything that uh, Nader Prohasen had said in the past about their drug and the company uh, was misleading and false and and the government uh, apparently agrees with me allegedly now <laughs> and um, he's in a, sig- a significant amount of legal trouble. Happy Christmas, Nader Porhasen. <laughs> Speaking of CEOs and their uh, relative amounts of holiday cheer, another annual tradition we have is the list of best and worst biotech CEOs uh, curated by you. I know you seek out counsel in, in making the list, but are, are the final say on it. And so people can go to statnews.com and read the individual lists of best and worst biotech CEOs of the year. I was curious, now that we're a few days removed from it, what is the response been like how what is it like to live in public on the internet as someone who covers this industry and writes you know journalistic objective stories about it but also curates a list that i assume pr departments the industry over do not desire to end up on which is the worst ceos in biotech each year yeah the worst list right i guess that's the one they don't want to be on the worst list and and they want to be on the best list but i i you know the reaction is fairly you know honestly fairly tame i don't I don't get a lot of angry emails for people on the on the or such. You you think I might? I mean, there are there are some. I mean, I've definitely bruised some egos and um, pricked some skin. I would say, and there have been times where yeah, it, it gets a little bit tense. Um, nothing like that this year necessarily. A little a little pushback on uh, uh, Alexis Borsi. You know, I named him as one of the worst. CEOs this year. Uh, there was a little bit of pushback on from him, or not from him. I should not say from him, but from maybe uh, friends and proxies of of him. Um, but you know, <laughs> that goes with the territory. Did what did you think of my list? I should ask you. I do. I do ask you. I ask you for my for your for your guidance, your your wise <laughs> guidance as I put this list together. Because you are, you know, you are one of my helpful helper help helpful helpers. But what did, what did you think of, of my list? I thought it was fair. I think... Did I miss anybody? Uh, well, geez. I, I mean, it can be difficult discerning best and worst because, you know, as, as we know from digging into the, the success and, and more often failure of companies, um, there tend to be a lot of authors of that success and failure. People... That, that is Whatever true. the old cliche yes. is. Um, but that being said, I thought it was fair. It takes more than a CEO to make a success or a failure. For sure. Right. I also think this year, which we'll we'll talk about in in a second, was very polar. Let's say there were some resounding mm-hmm. successes and resounding failures, and as a result, I thought your list this year, um, like you said, would likely be uncontroversial because there were such object lessons on both sides of how things can go for a biotech company in a twelve month right. period. Yeah. So I mean. If- I don't know if anyone's read the list yet who who also listens to this podcast, but uh, like, you know, my best CEO list this year uh, was topped by Haru Nato, uh, the CEO of ASI. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of a when I, you know, and I obviously selected him because of Lacanumab and Alzheimer's. Um, it's also a little bit of a risk, I would say, Damien, don't you think? Because, you know, obviously, I mean, I think everyone widely expects Lacanumab to be approved uh, early in January, but then, you know, that's kind of just call that maybe like the halfway point of the story, mm. right? Because 
then they've got to obviously go out and sell lecanemab. They've got to get it to patients. And, and there's a lot of challenges, as we know, and this is not a cure. And there's the safety risk, and we don't need to discuss all of that. Um, but, you know, as you said in the past, and I think you made a good point, like, you know, getting a drug developed is is really just kind of step number one. It, it doesn't really mean very much if it doesn't end up, you know, in the arms of patients if you're a vaccine or a drug being used to treat patients. So that's kind of the next challenge for ASI. So, you know, a little bit of a risk naming him best CEO, but I felt like, you know, given all the things that have happened in the past two years with Alzheimer's and obviously that other drug, which we shall not name, mention, <laughs> um, you know, it, he was a he was a worthy, a worthy selection. Well, and on that point, and at the risk of uh, dragging Lacanamab into this podcast once more, once one last time for the year, but there was news Thursday morning yeah. um, that ICER, which is a, a nonprofit that does lots of math over the course of sizable PDFs to conclude whether a given treatment is cost effective at different prices, they put out their analysis of Lacanamab on Thursday morning as we're recording this and came up with a price range of basically between about $8,600 and a little over $20,000 per year for Lacanamab, which according to their very fancy calculations of quality adjusted life years, which you can Google, I won't bore you with, um, is what the annual cost should be for this drug or could be for this drug such that it would be cost effective based upon the benefits that we've discussed ad nauseum that it displayed in clinical trials. Those numbers I don't think will come as a shock to anyone. Um, having spent the past few weeks talking to people not at ASI, ASI has not disclosed what they will charge for this drug, um, but in and around Alzheimer's disease, $20,000 has been a figure that we've heard quite a bit, somewhere between 15 and 20. This mystery will likely not be very long as Lacanamab is expected to win FDA approval on January 6th or before for that matter. And we would expect ASI to disclose the price immediately, if not shortly thereafter. So maybe this is a little bit academic, but as you know, as you mentioned, the, the, the real challenge for ASI moves forward, which is convincing people to pay for this medicine, specifically people at Medicare, if they price it within that ICER range, they then have you know this third-party analysis to point to while making the case that the drug is worth the money. So that is very much something to come in 2023, which we can talk about later, but that was at least the news on Thursday. Yeah, it will be, obviously, like you said, it will be very interesting to see what they price Lecanemab uh, at you know when they uh, when they get the approval when, and we'll know we'll know soon enough and then we can all debate the not only the clinically meaningfulness of the treatment but its cost effectiveness and that will be so much fun and we will be writing many <laughs> stories and talking about it on many future podcasts but uh you know again this is our last episode of the year so we did want to sort of spend a little bit of time kind of talking about uh where we've been over the last 12 months Damien and I don't know what what is I don't know if you have a big takeaway. I mean, it's been a difficult, it's been a rough year. Like, you know, just like 2021 was a rough year. We're, we're sort of in this, you know, this sort of uh, long, I don't know how to call it a bear market or a sort of, you know, down cycle in biotech, but it it is certainly extensive and, but almost also to the point where like you sort of get used to it. I feel like, like almost with COVID, you know, like where we, as we sort of went into the second year of COVID, you kind of it becomes kind of part of your daily routine and maybe you don't notice it as much. And and somehow I feel like with biotech this year, I felt like that. Like it was just, it's almost becoming normal again. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, to be in, in a little bit of a sort of a downbeat kind of market. 
Yeah, I mean, as we speak, the the XBI biotech index is down something like 30% uh, for the year, which has been the case basically in fits and starts um, since the spring. Has there been kind of like a stasis of just stock being bad with the exception of a brief respite, I think, in August? What I think is interesting is the seeming chasm between events and reality and that sentiment. And what I mean by that is like going into the fourth quarter of this year, if you wanted to sketch out how could biotech recover, you would say, well, if the lecanemab data hold up to scrutiny at, at the CTAD conference, which we discussed, that would be good. If the Madrigal Pharmaceuticals NASH treatment works, that would be good. If mRNA suggests that it has a life beyond the pandemic in the form of cancer vaccines, as we heard from Moderna, or the potential of a market for uh, mRNA COVID vaccines in China, which is sort of an inchoate thing, but still, that would be good. So on and so on. All of these things happened, basically, to, to varying degrees of you know one's positivity. But like that stuff actually happened. Technically, biotech had a great fourth quarter in terms of news. However, getting back to the XBI, it is down 30%. Yeah, it's it's the sort of disconnect between science and stocks, for for lack of a better word, you know, are the markets, right? Where you you think that you know the business of biotech is developing drugs, um, progressing the science, helping patients, and and like you said, we've had some pretty good headlines uh, in that regard, um, and it's helped individual stocks, right? Like you mentioned, Madrigal. Which you know had a big win with a with this drug for Nash, stock went crazy, right? Uh, you know if you're if you if you hold mat if you hold magical shares, you're a very happy person going into the end of the year. That has not translated into the broader market for biotech stocks, right? I think it's still, um, you know, maybe that's something that will sort of maybe that's a catch up, maybe that's a lagging indicator, and that's something that we'll we'll see in the beginning of January and February, you know, as we get into next year. That the broader the broader sentiment will improve because of uh, some of these you know kind of call them wins from clinical trials, um, but you know I guess that remains to be seen. But yeah, you're right. There's definitely a disconnect. So you mentioned you mentioned Moderna, uh, uh, Damien, and, and I and I it did strike me as I, I sort of thinking about the year that you know I kind of think of Moderna as having kind of a COVID hangover this year. You know, obviously so much excitement around the vaccine. For COVID and uh, the billions of dollars in sales generated from that product, but you know the the sort of the what next question from Moderna, it kind of just seems to hang over the company and to only intensify. Yeah, I mean they developed a COVID nineteen vaccine that was like very effective, superlatively lucrative, and there was maybe an hour in which like. At least Wall Street, <laughs> not the world at large. At least Wall Street was like, hey, congratulations. And, uh, you know, at the 59th minute was like, so what's next? And so for the past year, Moderna's kind of been in this holding pattern where demand for that vaccine steadily decreases as expected. This is true for the, the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine as well for all the obvious reasons um, of the, the state of the pandemic in the wealthy nations where they mostly make money off of these things. And so the demand has been, what's next? And, and Moderna has pointed to quite a few projects that they have involving mRNA, including maybe the furthest afield being treatments for, for rare and, and even some common diseases, and then other vaccines for, for respiratory viruses, which you know there's a varying degree of optimism for. Optimism for their potential efficacy, maybe less optimism for just how lucrative they might be. And then this kind of 
dark horse, maybe I would say, was the potential for personalized cancer vaccines, which is where you craft an mRNA to express uh, a, a given protein on a cancer cell that will make it susceptible to immunotherapy. That's kind of a jargony way of describing it, but either way. So recently we got some preliminary but positive data in that realm that sets in motion, really I think next year we'll really find out in a more concrete way, I guess, just how much potential yeah. there is in the personalized cancer vaccine realm. But it is something for Moderna to point to. So at least, you know, the the what have you done for us lately is getting something of an answer and people can debate just how powerful that is. Right. And, and there are other development projects uh, involving, you know, I'm sorry, sorry, other vaccines, right, beyond COVID, whether it's flu mm -hmm. or RSV. And, I mean, that that will be something that people will We'll pay attention to you know the other one of the other things big things i was thinking about damien was um the inflation reduction act or the ira that was a that was a big deal this year lots of hand-wringing you know this is the <laughs> sort of the drug pricing legislation that passed uh congress signed into law uh, over obviously the strenuous objections of the pharmaceutical and biotech industries we had we had our correspondent and uh, friend uh, Rachel Kors on the show many times talking about what was going on there. And um, that's one I think, you know, we will certainly be probably spending some time writing about and talking about in 2023 as kind of the the effects, the impact of that legislation, um, you know, is kind of borne out and, and, and whether or not the sort of the doom and gloom scenarios that many people in in the biopharma in the biopharma world feel you know strongly about or whether it's you know has less effect um, but that's definitely something out there right yeah and i wonder if the uncertainty around it is part of why as we mentioned earlier despite positive individual outcomes for new drugs the industry as a whole seems to be in a negative sentiment spiral uh, at least in the minds of investors because you know, the ira itself is incremental it would allow the government to negotiate the prices of certain drugs that meet certain criteria after a certain number of years and you know it, it's not exactly like flipping a switch and suddenly the united states has the healthcare system of germany for example however I think the fact that one, there's uncertainty, that's always frightful to people, but two, maybe the sort of like meta-narrative, the fact that the IRA passed suggests that the seeming omnipotence or like imperviousness of the drug industry to to lobby Congress and to, you know, cajole and and use its sharp elbows to defeat any such legislation, the fact that this passed is maybe a harbinger of more to come. That tends to be the case, although uh, there are examples in both directions. But there's a case to be made that this would be like the first salvo in a series of legislative and, and other kind of governmental actions that would fundamentally change the relative profitability of making new drugs in the United States, which is the most profitable place to make new drugs. And as long as that exists out there, that potential exists out there, that could have, you know, as they say on Wall Street, that could be a headwind for the industry heading into 2023 and beyond. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, the other one, another big topic that I feel like, uh, you know, was significant this year was gene therapies. You know, we had you know, kind of, I mean, again, talk about the disconnect gene therapy stocks down. Nobody wants to own gene therapy stocks or geno even genome editing companies down. But yet we had, uh, you know, we had quite a few approvals of gene therapies this year, Bluebird Bio, two of them. 
Um, but you know, the big question mark over all of that is, uh, is the business of gene therapy and whether or not these, you know, one time potentially curative treatments that are also, you know, well, I will call them insanely expensive, although obviously there are <laughs> cost effectiveness arguing arguments made why something that costs two, three million dollars is actually worth it. Um, and, you know, not not passing judgment on that, but but whether or not um, that business model can actually succeed uh, is going to be put to the test in the next year. Uh, you know, we're going to see whether or not Bluebird can sell its gene therapy for beta thalassemia. Um, you know, we'll have some approvals coming up probably in 2023. Uh, I think of like Sarepta, you know, may get its gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy approved uh, next year. Biomarin uh, is probably going to get its gene therapy for hemophilia A approved here in the U.S. next year. And so then, it, you know, then the challenge becomes, well, you know, can you sell these uh, treatments? You know, will insurers reimburse for them? How are healthcare systems going to pay for these very expensive one-time treatments? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, th those are the ones sort of at the vanguard of where the industry is at. And so those questions of the sustainability of a business built around that are vitally important for biotech and obviously for, for the patients who want access to these. But it feels like there's kind of a groundswell of interest in this problem kind of writ large. Uh, because, you know, for, for hemophilia A, for example, which is a rare disease, it meets the definition of rare disease, it is a relatively common rare disease. There are diseases that affect tens of people each year that likewise could be treated or even functionally cured by gene therapies. But the business and just uh, practical challenges that exist there have seemed insurmountable to this point. Um, our colleague Brittany Trang had a story this week about a new gene therapy for a form of SCID, which is commonly known as bubble boy disease, which itself is, is an ultra rare disease. This is an ultra rare variant of that ultra rare disease. And there's a gene therapy that appears to be very effective for it. And the researchers behind it are, you know, openly kind of scratching their heads as to how to advance it to a point where it'd be available to patients because the idea of a business built around a very difficult to make product that would benefit two to three people a year is sort of beyond the scope of anything that we've seen in, in the way that biotech is structured to date. And likewise, um, there was a great story in the New York Times this week involving uh, Stanley Crook, who, who we all know is the, the founder of Ionis Pharmaceuticals, who has since embarked upon a nonprofit effort to develop treatments for what are basically N of 1 diseases, ultra, ultra rare. I don't know if that's a phrase, but basically the rarest possible disease that you could imagine. And this often means creating drugs for a single patient, which, you know, the business model around that is also entirely theoretical. So this is a case where the science has advanced to a point where medicine can do things that once seemed impossible, but the parameters around which things are paid for and administered has not evolved in step with that. And I think that's an issue that in 2023 and beyond will remain the subject of not just academic debate as it has been for many years, but very practical debate over what to do with an effective drug that seems to be vexing in terms of how to actually get to a patient who would benefit from it. So one thing I've noticed uh, about this podcast over the last six months is that we haven't talked much about COVID. <laughs> and maybe that's maybe that's because when Meg went on leave, you know, Meg obviously spent a lot of time dealing with COVID because, you know, her network, CNBC, was focused on it. And, and so she brought that to the Read Out Loud. Um, but I don't know, it's 
why haven't we talked about COVID as much, Damien? Is it? Oh, boy. Should we be talking about COVID more or not? I know I'm putting you on the spot with that question. I feel like we could, we shouldn't do this episode without talking about COVID. Yeah. Yeah. It's still, it's still out there, I'm told. Um, it's still no, out probably there. we yeah. should be talking about it more. <laughs> I think one of the difficult things from the lens of this podcast, which tends to focus on like the development of novel interventions for disease and the business surrounding them. Through that lens, we've kind of had the same medical interventions for COVID for quite a while now. The vaccines have been updated, which we've discussed, and you know, the we, we learn more about the treatments, certain treatments, the virus has evolved beyond being treated by, etc. But it's easy to kind of get lulled into looking at the pandemic as it still exists as sort of a background issue because the novel stuff has largely come to pass. That's not to dismiss. I know there are efforts at intranasal vaccines and other very fancy things that would be wonderful were they to work out. But the huge focus on like the race to a vaccine, the race to get a Tamiflu for COVID-19, all of that stuff being in the rearview mirror, the COVID conversation has kind of transitioned into one of public health, which is probably a blind spot for for you and me as yeah. people talking into microphones. Yeah, maybe. I mean, when, when we were at uh, the ASH meeting, you and I, in New Orleans, you know, there was those signs on the door of the convention center. I noticed that on every door it said mask required to enter the convention center. Um, how many, what percentage of people do you think are wearing masks <laughs> inside the convention center? What's your guess? Fewer than 10, fewer than 10. And actually the same I, I, thing struck me. You think? I, mean, probably I was going to say that. 20%. So I actually, okay. but you know, yeah, pretty low, a pretty low number though. A similar thing struck me in San Francisco at the Clinical Trials and Alzheimer's Disease Conference, which is a global conference, uniting neuroscientists, but also geriatricians, people who treat the elderly. And the mass compliance there, I would assume, I would estimate was even lower. And I mean, I'm not trying to snitch on anyone, and, and I am definitely guilty of all manners of lack of precaution with respect to public health. But it did occur to me, like, you guys are all flying out across the world to sit in rooms <laughs> with very elderly and, and thus, you know vulnerable to COVID people. And yet here we all are at this hotel in San Francisco watching the World Cup in the lobby. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I am not passing judgment. I'm just making an observation. That's all. Uh, all right. Well, this we should bring this to a close uh, and we should look forward to 2023. Damien, it's been a it's been a pleasure recording another year's worth of podcast with you. Likewise. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and I look forward to uh, having Meg back. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we'll we'll be reintroducing the concept of COVID-19 to our listeners who must be very excited and curious as to uh, what happened <laughs> to this public health crisis over the past 6 months and all manners of news that we will that we will be bringing and exciting guests in 2023. So with that, uh, I guess I should just do the outro, right? And with that, that does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud, as we said, the last for 2022. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode and every week's episode, unless I'm mistaken, for the past year and presumably for the year to come. Here, here. Big thanks to Teresa. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Abinado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your predictions for 2023. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, including the fact that we didn't mention the company that starts with B in this episode, <laughs> leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. 
And finally, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to us all year long and to everyone who's ever been a guest on this podcast for putting up with our questions and demands on just how you record yourself. Thanks for a lovely 2022. Hold that phone like a pizza. (laughs) We will see you in 2023. Testing, one, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Testing, testing. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Teresa, you're sitting right next to me. Yeah, happy holidays, Damien. <laughs> Thank you. Just you and I today. <laughs> no, I, didn't, I didn't realize this was the show. I was. Christmas time is here. Happiness and cheer. Fun for all that children call their favorite time of year. Regardless of what the answer is, yes or no, with Lacanamab, it will be less constipated? Fuck. Well, I mean that too, I guess. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I did see a tweet that queued up the phrase blinded data pipe to the chorus of Blinded by the light. Blinded data pipes. Blinded data pipes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah.